everybody. Welcome to Bone to Pick. I'm Michael Davis, and we are coming to you today from Los Angeles, California. And I am absolutely honored to have the opportunity to interview uh, one of the great trumpet players of all time, one of the most recorded trumpet players ever, the great Malcolm McNabb. Uh, Malcolm has recorded on well over 2,000 motion picture film scores. He's been featured as a soloist on dozens of those. He's on hundreds of television shows and a myriad of pop music credits, including the late, great Frank Zappa. He is a multiple recipient of the Most Valuable Player Award from the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences. He has released two CDs as a solo artist, and uh, for those of you who have heard those CDs, you realize he's also one of the premier trumpet soloists anywhere on the planet. Uh, and as if that weren't enough, uh, he is uh, in partnership with BNS Instruments in Germany. He's designed a line of trumpets called Exquisite, which shares the name and quality uh, with his uh, first solo CD. So. I am really thrilled, Malcolm. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule and uh, to sit down today and talk about your incredible life and in music. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, my That's great. I'm, my pleasure. Totally my pleasure. Um, Malcolm, let's jump in. You grew up in Southern California and had, had the good fortune of studying with some great teachers very early on, and I know you have a lot of great memories about that. Maybe you could share some of your thoughts about those teachers and what kind of impact they had on you. Sure, because, uh, you know, there's not only having good teachers, but generosity is a factor too and the kindness in which they treat it you know and and don't try to intimidate you but share with you and i i always found that the best teachers are students themselves mm -hmm. they're always open to whatever works more efficiently and, and works better so um i had first of all when i started out i think i was about 14 and you know playing all the time my dad had a trumpet around the house and he played you know, just minimum. He knew two tunes. He knew at, at sundown and I don't want to set the world on fire. So I learned those first. <laughs> and they had an old, old beat up trumpet. So took it in school and everything. But by the time I was in high school, I won a scholarship for lessons, a PTA scholarship, and ended up with Walter Larson in Pasadena, who it was a great influence on me. Very musical. Um, mm -hmm. He had studied with Clark when Clark was in Long Beach and Herbert Clark. And uh, he was just really good, and he, you know, like it was about music, and it was about all the Mendez solos, and about all the Herbert Clark solos, the Frank Simon, Herman Belstadt, all those stuff. It went through all that, and uh, you know that was that was really good. But he was so generous uh, to a point like he he said, well, you know, that's I I can't do much more. We got to go to someone else. So you know, he gave me some names, and you know, I tried out these guys. The first two didn't work out. They were all great players, and but didn't have time mostly. And then I ended up with this guy, Jimmy Stamp. I'm thinking, was this, is, it, is that Postage Stamp's brother or something? You know, I never heard of the name Stamp. But, you know, I thought, okay, well, I'll do that. This is the, next, this is the third choice. And, you know, we got, went over to his studio. And, um, you know, I was amazed when he said, no, don't get your horn out. Just stand up there with your mouthpiece. What? You know, it was sort of strange. So I did it. And something made me come back, thinking there's something to this, but I don't know what yet. And... Uh, Really, uh, over the years, I realize now more and more, it takes a long time to, uh, to uh, enjoy all the results and benefits of this, like mm -hmm. when you're my age. Mm -hmm. And I realize here was my teacher, Jimmy Stamp, uh, sitting, playing with everyone all day long in an easy chair with his legs crossed and sitting back like there's just nothing to it, playing from pedal C to double C. And I'm thinking, what's up with that? And uh, I realize that now I can't brag about the benefits to people when I'm teaching them what I do. Uh, 
that you know you're, you're most of the in most incredible benefits are going to happen when you get to be my age, you know, <laughs> and it still improves and it still gets more efficient, and it's only about efficiency. So that was probably the biggest. He was the biggest influence on me, and uh, before I went back east, I think so. 1960, I started with Stamp. That's 50, going on 54 years ago. That's how long I've been doing this one routine. Mm -hmm. And so you know the uh, the deer in the headlights look that people get young people these days, you know, go, are you kidding me? How long is this all going to take, pops? Well, I say, <laughs> well, I'm in my 53rd year, and and uh, you know, any other questions? I mean, it's getting better, so I just take it from me, and you you won't know it until you really get to be an old guy, you know, and then you that things got so efficient, and it's all about pitch center, mm -hmm. staying in pitch center, and learning how to uh, warm up and maintain yourself, and like. In our business, you know, where you can't keep warmed up in these places, uh, to uh, warm up and warm down many times a day, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. to, you know, to, because you sit and get cold for an hour at a time and you can't play. So all this stuff has helped me with that. Um, recovering, you know, how to the morning after the night before, right? Because more and more uh, trumpet players all over the world are not just doing like symphony or. This sort of, or it's, they're doing everything. They'll play in a big band at night, and the next day they got to get up and play a quintet thing, and you know, mm -hmm. for the sensitivity and and light. And uh, I realize the challenge really is getting the lips back together when you get spread, and that's true with all brass players. You know, it's the same. Um, a lot, especially a lot of playing in the middle register for a long time. <laughs> and I experienced uh, probably the best lesson I ever had with Jimmy Stamp was um, I was doing a show Napoleon. Maybe it was in. It was uh, Carmen Coppola that did it. Uh, it was an old 1927 silent movie that it was four hours long. And he just put, he had some Beethoven in there and some original music, but it was wall-to-wall -wall music. Mm. And uh, we had a pretty strong trumpet section. We had, you know, John Adino, Warren Looning, Bob Finley at one time, and um, Mike Ortega was another guy. But, you know, we did it several runs there at the Shrine Auditorium. And... Uh, it was like, you know, it was, a, it was really a bloodbath for trumpet, for sure. But, you know, I found out, okay, I, we used to have TV films sessions that started at 8 a.m. And now, how do you get it? The first thing is get them back together in the morning. Trying to attack and bring the, get the buzz going. It wasn't happening because they were too spread apart. So I called Jimmy Stamp at, at night, and I said, you know, I, I, I have to get in, but I don't have any time, and I, I can't get it together. And... It was getting pretty emotional with me. I was going, uh-oh, what, what do I do now? So he says, well, get your horn now on the phone. You know? And it's the best lesson I ever had over a telephone. Uh, put the phone up here, cradling it. He says, okay, now, have you started, uh, have you started the tone without a, with an articulation, just the air? So I said, well, I haven't tried that yet. Okay, just blow air until it comes out. Take like a second line G and uh, just no two, poo, coo, anything to start it, but just let the lips start vibrating with the air naturally. Boy, he was right. In five minutes, he had me, had them together and back to square one. And then he said, well, play it a long tone. Now play it, hold it out. Now uh, put a bend in the beginning of it. And I mean, he means a mechanical bend, but not, nothing gradual, not da, but Ah, ooh, ah. So bending to the false note and playing against the resistance, coming right back up on line and holding it out, whew, it started really coming together. Wow. So, and this is true with all brass instruments because I've taught these, you know, with all multiple instruments uh, in 
master classes, and I've even done them under under a tree in Hungary, Hungary at this <laughs> brass camp one time, where they didn't really speak English. But um, just to illustrate, you know, how how to start and how to bring them back together, how to maintain them, and at that point, I realized that's a valuable thing. I'd already had a lot of lessons with Jimmy Stamp, but I realized that that's that got me out of the woods. That mm -hmm. that was the cure, but maybe it's also the prevention. So then that was incorporated in my routine before I do anything else. Start the lips, just vibrating on on their own naturally with the air, and I do that for a couple minutes and quicker and quicker all the time. It just gets right to the zone. That's so you know? cool. It's so amazing to have that uh, impact from that tip from from him. It was one. That, it was one key on. thing. That's that awesome. Hey, let's um, jump ahead to 1964. Yeah. You you uh, came to New York. You joined the uh, the army and played in the West Point band, which back then it's still a great band. But back yeah. then, I think it was yeah. a really exceptional yes. uh, service band. Um, during your time at West Point, you studied with William Vacchiano and John Ware, the mm -hmm. New York Philharmonic. That's right. Yeah. Um, what kind of an impact did they have on you uh, in terms of your playing oh. on stage? Well, huge in a different way. Um, the first guy I could get in with was Johnny Ware, and uh, he was such a great musician, so musical. He didn't do a lot of the stuff that Vacchiano did or Stamp or anything like that, but it was more like, uh, say if we're in an excerpt book, or a, not an excerpt, but an etude book like Charlie or something, he would play it, and then you'd play it, you'd learn from it. Sort of like when I took a lessons, two lessons with Dachschützer. Couldn't understand, you know, he couldn't <laughs> speak English, I couldn't speak Russian or German, so, <laughs> so it was more like just you know, sign language and, you know, play this this way, and he would play, and it was phrasing. It was about phrasing and music, you know. But uh, in Jimmy Stamp, you know, he, he uh, it, was, it was stuff you could hang your hat on. In other words, it was like tangible. You knew what to do. There was the mechanical part of it. Um, it took care of itself if you just did it. It wasn't, wasn't like an odd, mysterious uh, concept or something. It was like, play it with me, and we'd stay pitch center to pitch center. And in, in, as far as they called it, square corners. So not, you know, when you do a slur, da, da, uh, uh, coming off the bottom of the note and the way down puts you out of focus. Mm -hmm. And conversely, same thing, slurring up. Or articulation, it's, it's like the placement of the note center. So start thinking about the most important thing is the note you're leaving from and how you leave it to wind up in the right place. And so when you start playing in, in pitch center all the time, the architecture of the overtones system is such that, oh boy, when you start getting in the middle of these notes and immediately from middle of one to the middle of the next, things start getting easier. Pitch, endurance, everything, you, you realize, hey, yeah, that feels good, you know? And the end result is, you know, from pedal C up to the double C or, you know, in that area, can be all approached from one spot, from the same spot. And mm. it's, it's all right there. And instead of the, that seeming like from here to here, you know, it's enormous from low to high, it feels like it's right on a shelf right here mm -hmm. and it's accessible mm -hmm. because it's more like about the corners and just developing, this is your endurance here, these muscles, you know. And if you think that you're going to get more endurance by pounding harder right here, you're not. Other yeah. things happen. This is really delicate here. So you realize that, you know, you want to take the burden off of this and transfer it to this. And uh, having said that, don't go, don't keep doing that when it hurts as right, you're developing right, it, right. you know. And like Rafael Mendez, who is, you know, we got to know through Yuan, really spent some time with him. It's like that same thing, you know. He, he said, yeah, I, well, yes, I, I could practice 12 to 16 hours a day sometimes, but if, it, if what I was playing took a minute, 
I rested a minute, mm -hmm. but it would mm -hmm. go on all day that way mm -hmm. until, uh, well, Yuan and he were, and Ralph Mendez were, were in, uh, at MGM together for uh, three or four years, actually, when Yuan first got there. And a lot of times his wife, Amor, a really nice lady, would call Yuan really late at night and says, can you talk to your friend? He won't stop. He won't, he's, <laughs> he's, he's in his pajamas and robe, and he's still practicing the same measures he was practicing in the morning, and it's like almost midnight. And can you talk to him? He said, well, I don't know. He's, you know, and that's the way he was, you know, it's amazing. But uh, to have the stamina, there's a few guys that have that stamina, you know, and, and can do that. Uh, I'm not going to mention names, but, you know, people that are maybe, if they weren't doing that, they'd wash their hands a hundred times a day. It's a little bit obsessive, you know, but, and I never, I never really put more time in than two hours a day, yeah. really, in my whole career. But I was playing so much and going from job to job that you really, you know, you're sort of in the zone all the time. That's why it's hard to do once in a while. Yeah. If you know, you can't go month through between jobs. If you're not practicing every day, you can't sit in a first trumpet chair not knowing what's going to come in. Sure, you know? sure. Um, Malcolm, in 1969, then you came back to Los Angeles. Yeah. And, uh, and you would start what has become the, one of the most prolific and successful uh, recording careers of all time. Um, can you talk about your feelings at that time when you got back to L.A. and just kind of getting, getting your bearings? And I assume you started getting studio work right away. and were, were Not right away, really. There. Not right away. I came back because Mommy and Daddy, you know, mm -hmm. they, they had a house, and uh, <laughs> I was out of work. Actually, after, uh, after West Point, I went up to Maine. I was in this uh, uh, young audience quintet, actually. We spent the year traveling on doing concerts for... Uh, Young Audiences, Title Three Project, you know, up in Bangor, Maine. And uh, then that sort of fell through after that year, and then I just came back home and lived with Mom and Dad, and I think it was the first couple, two, three years, uh, maybe I got a couple Glendale Symphony concerts, local community orchestras on third trumpet. And, you know, so the nice thing about a place like L.A., there's this crossover, the same people that are doing the casuals are involved in studio work, so you have to wait until someone... A lot of times people say, you've got to wait for someone to die. But no, really, someone doesn't show up or someone gets busy. Who can we get? Everyone's busy. Well, we, we work with this guy on some little gig, you know, and mm -hmm. maybe you should try him. So then you get your chance, you know, and then, you know, the thing about that is you're sort of really on the spot if you're the new guy because everyone in that room is sort of, who's that, you know, mm -hmm. and they're listening a little carefully. So it's important that, you know, you don't come in and, and say you're a jazz specialist and sitting in front of the orchestra in a solo chair playing something legit or vice versa. You know, if, they, mm -hmm. if, if I got plugged into a jazz job, they think, who's that putz? You know, I mean, gee, <laughs> you know, he's, he's, you know, setting it back years. But uh, no, you know, you have to realize that you, you have to be in the right spot for you, you know, and... Uh, know how to pass it or know how to get, you know, and it's teamwork, really. That's what I found out over the years. The best things happen when you got a section of trumpet players and uh, everyone does something, you know, and if it's Chuck Finley, Warren Looning, the guys that are you're around, hey, if this is, if I'm playing first, it's in my book, and, you know, hey, he does it better. He does it for breakfast. Let's get in and get out of here and get in tune and go home or to go to the next job, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and let's just get it done, you know, whoever yeah. does it. And to sit there and struggle on some kind of lead part when I got a lead trumpet player sitting here that can just do it easily, efficiently. Uh, so it's like that cooperation, just to everyone knows what they do and, and uh, you don't want to get caught like, hey, I can do everything, you know, and get out there and step on it, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those are things to learn and getting along with the guys. 
those are your colleagues that you know you have to you can't no matter how good a player is you come in with an attitude and uh, start cutting people out get too aggressive uh, you know that makes a difference you know mm -hmm. uh, is you know find a way to blend in for sure first yeah you know, like probably the first several years I worked and I probably didn't say a word I just sat there and, and watched it all going wow I'm glad I'm not there in that chair now <laughs> but I'm listening to the guy doing I'm going wow and I'm learning and I'm thinking okay maybe one day and uh, so gradually sort of worked into that and you learn how the pacing the pacing is so much different you know that you know you can sit and not stay warmed up all this time and and still have to all of a sudden the red light goes on and you know there's air conditioning in the room your horn is ice cold now I'll play <laughs> you know <laughs> that's the challenge that's not for everybody and you have to get used to that so I think that you know like I got used to it because 43 years later, I mean, that's what I've been doing. But if they asked me to go down to the Philharmonic and play something that's been on this program for a year, and I know that everyone in the audience, there's some students out there that know the notes, you know, I wouldn't want to do that. I don't feel <laughs> comfortable doing that one shot and it's this. But you know that you're in that environment. It's the pacing is the most important thing to get used to. How do you stay warmed up? How are you stand by stay loose and get ready to do it when when all of a sudden boom let's go because mm -hmm. you know? as you know that everything stops and they have to fix music they have to change things there's a lot of factors there's a director and a producer and everyone else involved uh, working things out so that's a great piece of advice I think uh, a lot of times as as instrumentalists we don't think about teamwork but uh, clearly uh, that's a part of your thought process and and it's it's really outstanding piece of advice for us all because like you said, somebody's doing something at a very high level. You can't do everything, so That's why right. not? Why not utilize the talent have that you have next to you and listen and learn? Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah maybe. Exactly. But if you and then there are times when you get stuck and there's no one else there. You know, yeah. if it's like a one trumpet gig, and then all of a sudden, okay, thank you, uh, strings, thank you, woodwinds, and and then we just keep the brass and uh, or 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 sometimes I was the only trumpet there, and then a rhythm section is there, and you know, Ray Brown. <laughs> and maybe J.J. Johnson and Bud Shank, I mean, are sitting next to me, and I'm playing like in a little uh, front line of a, of a, you know, head charts. I'm going, oh, there's no boy. Sometimes you get caught in that, and then uh, the contract is up to the contractor. And I remember doing that one time on something that was, it was. I'm thinking, you know, like I was, nothing in the book, all tacit sheets, and I'm laying on a couch, and all of a sudden I hear a trumpet, and wake up run over between some baffles and all I'm seeing, no one except this baffles that I'm in and there's no music in it. And the red light's on and the composer, whoever that was, is like, uh, it's, it's coming up. He's getting ready to take the cue. The red light's on. They're going to record trumpet. Uh, Miles, cool. <laughs> Boom. I'm going, Miles who? <laughs> you know, Harmon mute, you know, whatever, you know, and I played some dumb stuff, you know, I'm thinking, oh God, I hope no one ever, I mean, I hope they don't use it, I hope they don't hear it. And then a week later, the same contractor calls you for something like that, and it's all faking. And guys like that, like Bud Shank, are, are with you. And, uh, you know, it's intimidating. It, you know, it happens sometimes you get, it's typecasting and stuff like that. I've been actually on a gig in a recording studio where it was faking behind a singer, and the contractor really had messed up. He had, he had me on the wrong job. And meanwhile, over at the studio in Hollywood, uh, there is a movie lot, uh, there was a guy that's a jazz player 
trying to play a legit thing. So like we just, after about an hour into the date, we changed places, you know, it was about a 15 mile trip. But we, we you know, well, yeah, you go over there and now you go over there. Okay. So, you know, that's, it's a call of them. So, you know, there's things that can come up all the time that you're not comfortable with and uh, styles uh, so much these days that I'm not sure some of the people are doing it. I mean, have you listened to the twenties, the thirties, the forties, you know, what kind of mutes they play, how they phrase or stuff like that? I've always tried to listen and listen mm -hmm. to the old bands and, and, you know, like when it's a, a period thing, you know, or like, okay, this is modern times, but it's a hotel in New York. It's Lester Lannon. Who? You know, right. it's corny, right. Right. A different kind of vibrato. And I've heard even like sax players uh, be on something that says, oh yeah, it's, uh, you know, and they're playing rock and roll style, you know, and uh, they say, no, no, it's, it's, it's society. It's New York society. It's a corny band, you know, it's says, mm -hmm. okay, gotcha, you know. No, it's got to be that sweet vibrato, be, yeah. Guy Lombardo style, yeah. you know, but it's all these things that people should know, you know, if they're going to be in that situation, because all the music that's in a film, the background they call source music, in a restaurant, radio, elevator, music, mm. uh, opera, mariachi in a Mexican restaurant. I mean, that's all those same people at the end of the date when they let everyone else go. Okay, now we're going to do this thing and you got to be mariachi. You know? mm -hmm. Well, we've heard it and we try it, you know. Your ability to listen is obviously a huge part of your success it's, because that's, even talking about put, put, being in that jazz context, the fact that you've always listened your whole life, you, you're going to get through it because you come, you come from that musical perspective. I've listened a lot. I just not a lot, enough experience doing it all, but, mm -hmm. you know, then at least you got a little heads up on, you know, that it should be a certain way and then you can rely on other people too, luckily. But, you know, mm -hmm. I've learned from other people on a style that we're actually there, you know. Yeah. Malcolm, one of the things that's always impressed me and inspired all of us as brass players is the, the level of virtuosity you bring to the solos that you've played on the film scores. And we were talking before the interview, many times you're not credited, although we all kind of find out. But um, can you talk about this aspect of playing? I mean, some of the more well-known solo uh, film scores you've done, uh, Dances with Wolves, Independence Day, Air Force One. Uh, my personal favorite is your work on L.A. Confidential. It was amazing to me. Um, how, that's got to be one of the most demanding and pressurized situations, I would think. Can you talk about how you approach that and, and just what that whole experience is like when you're, when you're placed in that situation? Yeah, it can, be, it can be pretty, you know, nervous sometimes when you think about it, it's all up to you and you're playing alone. And probably the worst one is not being able to stay warm up and like at the end of a long cue or like a segment of music. There's a little trumpet solo that comes in. It's not high. It's not necessarily, but it's like you have been sitting a long time, and 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 you want to come in on it. And if you fluff, you know, then they got to go all the way back. Mm -hmm. And so you got people sitting in front of you, looking pretty bored, you know, like violas and stuff like that. And then, you know, you might be playing something over and over, and you you always got it. And then the next time you you miss the note or you, an octave slur or something like that, and they give this, they turn around with this dirty look. How could you do that? You know, what I mean, <laughs> we want to go home. You know, what I mean, and that, so that's added pressure too. Sure. You know, but uh, I just think in terms of all my uh, the basics of tone production and okay, make sure there's an articulation there. Stay in the middle of that note before you go to that note, and that's all happening under a phrase. And you got to think that maybe maybe there's a way that, that somehow the music's going to come through naturally. But I'm thinking mechanically, mm -hmm. not taking chances, playing safe. You know, okay, make sure you put enough into it, and you don't want to, you know, fluff it. So you know, those things are like that. But, but of course, if you're doing uh, solo things where you know you're doing it for a long time, 
you sort of you know you're warmed up to it and you just and then then the endurance is the other thing that might come up you know how many times you're going to do it we did a title with Dennis McCarthy and one of the Star Trek things called uh, um, what was the name of it not the, not the next generation Star Trek Deep Space Nine hmm. it was one of the spin-offs there and originally I played the solo they did it again another guy played it but so different ones were rerun all the time but I think I have to play it about 50 times in a morning. It's a theme, you know, and then the, the difficulty was, starts the intro as a big high horn solo. That's got a nail. Now, trumpet comes in and plays for like 16 bars, going up to high C concerts. And so, you know, I... Over and over, and, and the challenge becomes not music, hitting the notes. Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah. It goes, they're going over and over and over. It's like take 30-something now, and, you know, sitting there. And then sort of, I finally scratched something, and then, of course, the orchestra went, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. They wanted me to miss it, you know. And, finally missed it. <laughs> and so that's, that's how it went down. And then, at the end of that, four trumpets had to play that same thing in unison. And then so there, it had to be one take that had no clams, and it was it was pretty, and then they it you know you better hope that it's going to be good because these things rerun you know yeah people yeah. people in the, in the old days didn't re- think about syndication or these things are going to come back to bite you at, you know and <laughs> there's a few and I'm not going to say what they are but you know you'd be uh, falling asleep to the television and then all of a sudden you hear dun 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 piao and go that was me oh my <laughs> god that got through they didn't read oh boy they they chose the wrong take I'm not going to tell anyone. <laughs> Especially well, a pyramid with well, the breast bone. Boom, 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 you know. Well, I think where you're concerned, those uh, those moments are few and far between. We but, hope. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we, we can always hope so, you know. But uh, you know, it's the it's the averages out. But you know, that's only one element. Being prepared, being able to handle it. Um, it's a very social thing. Uh, there's a lot of schmoozing that goes on, mm-hmm. as you know. You know, people. Uh, everyone's running their own game, trying to get into it, and um, I understand that, you know. But uh, I, I was sort of one that just, and I didn't promote myself too much, and of course I didn't have any solo CDs out in, for years and years until recent years, you know. So it was like, you know, I did, I had to go in and just do the best I could and and hope it, you know, hope it worked out. But you know, after a while, you you get a little more confidence in that thing, and you're glad that you're not in another kind of work that you're at least used to the pacing, because uh, you know it can be. It can be very nervous mm. sometimes, and uh, I'm sort of glad, you know, in a way that there's not a lot of it anymore. And I'm on to other things. And you know, in this stage of my career, I sit in my studio and I'm going, "Oh, shouldn't I be someplace today?" Well, mm. it's not happening anymore. But I realize also, I don't have 12-hour days. I don't have to drive in L.A. for three to four hours every day mm-hmm. to get mm-hmm. to and from during rush hour both ways anymore and I'm thinking well that's good because everything's over on the west side from where I live and you really literally spend between three and four hours coming and going there yeah. in the car and you know what that means is okay you're driving like this in rush hour traffic LA traffic then you get a horn and you're, and you're still your neck and shoulders are in the same position and then you get done with that and then you get back in the car and this is <laughs> no wonder we're so tight you know <laughs> you know yeah. 
It may, you make it sound so glamorous. Well, well you know, <laughs> those, those are, that's the nitty-gritty of it. That's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm classifying that into the uh, uh, division of, you know, uh, whew, I'm, glad, yeah, that, I'm glad that part's over. Yeah, you know? and I think from, uh, from us as brass players getting to hear you uh, featured more in, in your solo CDs, which we'll talk about in a minute, but, uh, you know, that's all good for us, you know, getting to hear that side of your playing and musicianship. So that's a big a big. I didn't know how positive. to do it. I didn't know how it was ever going to happen. It was in the back of my mind, oh, I'd love to do some solo things, but I don't know how to do it. And I guess I was waiting, you know, for someone to call, hey, man, we, we, you're that trumpet player? Yeah, we got a lot of money for you. Come on, let's go over and rec-. That ain't going to happen, you know. So <laughs> Gary gave me the reality check, and he says, well, you know, you got to do it yourself, yeah. and I'll show you how. Yeah. And we did, um, and he's the genius of it. You know, you're going to see him a little later on. He's, he's the one that had a, the idea when we we did the Tchaikovsky concerto, for instance. We were getting, we were pretty much through with the orchestra, and which was recorded, tracked, and we went over to the Fox Newman stage, very beautiful room, and uh, and Gary had this idea. Let's blow the orchestra dry into the Fox stage, and then bring it back on a good mic tree, deca tree and bring uh, a good quality back in and put it on a track. In other words, record the orchestra the orchestra part in the room. Mm-hmm. So really using the room for the bass response because, oddly enough, when you hear that, it's more of a concert hall sound, but it was actually just one bass, two celli, and that's all was in the, uh, the bottom of the orchestra. Wow. We had you know bassoons and so like that. But, but basically, the room was part of the sound because the, the room reacted to those frequencies and we had the whole room, the floor. And so when we, when, and Gary was right, an engineer, very, a very famous guy that had been around for a long, long time. Uh, he said, Gary, it's not going to work. We, we've tried this many times, you know, and it, no, it's not going to work. Not going to work. Gary says, I think it's going to work. And he says, no, Gary, I think it's going to work. <laughs> so he stuck with it and uh, prevailed. And then it, it, when we got to the final mix of everything, um, all you had to do was just bring that fader up just a bit so you could feel it. And you felt the floor now. And that's why it became not my garage anymore. Uh-huh. And, and it's funny because, uh, well, Gene Picorni in the Chicago Symphony, you know, he, he knew about this and he, was, he said, man, you've got to send them out and I'm going to give it to the brass players in the Chicago Symphony. So they're all good guys, Chris Martin and, and John Hagstrom and Taga, you know, uh, Larson and, uh, and John, uh, uh, Mark is the other guy. And, uh, you know, I actually heard the comment, why can't our band sound like that in our symphony hall? I said, well, I hate to tell you, that's my garage. <laughs> that's my garage. Oh, so, you great. know, that, and that, that's the genius of Gary Grant. You know, he put that whole thing together, and I couldn't have done it without him. That's and we did two of them together, and then, you know, he's busy with other things and bigger fish, for sure. But... Um, I realized that I'm sort of on my own trying to get going on the next one. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, a lot of upgrading in the studio. And then now the studio's a storeroom because we're remodeling, doing a major remodel. And uh, enough of my problems. But, but I actually had recorded uh, in Budapest, my, my wife's hometown, Budapest, Hungary. Uh, we recorded with virtuoso gypsy musicians, mm. the kind that are, you know, they're really gypsies. Uh, the ethnic thing is there, but also Franz Liszt Academy, you know, really schooled people. And lo and behold, we end up at the at the studio where uh, he's the first guy that ever used Pro Tools in Hungary, and he teaches it. So it was like no snags, anything you want to do, and it was spectacular. So cymbalum, uh, bowed bass, and guitar, you know. And I recorded. Uh, well, I did guide tracks, but we still have to really clean them up. Zikrner Weiss and Chartis, Horace Staccato, Brahms Hungarian Fifth, 
dance, you know, uh, stuff like that. And that, I was thinking in terms of that'll be part of an album, you know, ah, with that nice. combination. But it's unique because the cymbalum is accompanying it and the bowed bass, you know, and it's very, it's very gypsy, you know, and they were so good together. He said, okay, well, we'll give you the, um, the Hungarian version and the Romanian version. I said, great. And then uh, I thought, well, this could be a collage, so can you give me bridges that go from C minor to D minor, D minor to C minor, and stuff like that that I can use? And then they did a bunch of those. So that's the way I envisualized that, uh, that project winding up as part of a, the next CD, mm. my third one if I ever get to it. But, you know, it's, it's more like um, I know I can do it because uh, I'm getting more efficient all the time, and that's, that's, the, that's going back to that for, good fortune of running into Jimmy Stamp back in 1960. Right, getting you know. that mindset. That's great. Yeah. And uh, well, well, we'll certainly look forward to uh, hearing that project for sure. Um, just to, to uh, kind of take a little bit of a step back, with, with I wanted to throw out some names in terms of uh, uh, film composers and, uh, and folks that you've worked with, uh -huh. and just maybe have some quick thoughts you might have about these uh, amazing musicians and your you know, vast level of experience with each one of them. Mm -hmm. um, why don't we start with Jerry Goldsmith, who was the composer on the L.A. Confidential, yeah. and you did yeah. that uh, great solo. I think the first, well, I worked with Jerry the first time in 1971, Wild Rovers. I was playing third trumpet, watching in, in awe of everything that was going on in the, the big orchestra. It was a Western movie. And uh, then I think I worked on MacArthur and everything. But, it, it, you know, several years later, you know, we, we, got, we did the Star Trek, original Star Trek, the movie. And I think it must have been 1977 or something like that. And that was big. But there was a, a little problem with that because uh, there was a lot of, Chiefs in the in the booth. The, the, it was a Paramount picture, but we were doing it at Fox, and we had a, a new music supervisor that was twenty something and didn't understand things. He hated us. We all got fired, anyways. From Jer and Jerry walked off the picture. At, coming back from lunch at Fox one time, threw the baton. Now let's go home. That's it. He was hearing too much in the headphones from the booth, you know. And so when they came back, it didn't include us. We didn't get it, and because they. Mm -hmm. The guy was telling him, um, this guitar player was in there and he's saying, oh, these guys aren't like the New York guys. You know, they're, 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 you need legit guys. Let's get the guys from the symphony. So they weren't available, so they end up getting the, the students that play backstage, you know, the extra <laughs> players. But, you know, we did, the, we did probably the 80% of it is on, the, is on the movie and the ones we did, but there was just, it, it was a hiatus of a month or so. They didn't record anything. And then when they came back, we didn't get the call. So um, at that point, I, I was blaming Jerry. I said, oh, you didn't step forward. and We did a lot of things for you. And then, but I realized that I wasn't cheating anyone except my, me hmm. not being with him. You know, hmm. For 10 years, I didn't take any calls. I turned them down because hmm. I, I guess I was trying to teach him a lesson. <laughs> and then finally, I realized, you know, I think Space. I went back in the middle 80s or something for a... Uh, for a thing called inner space, and you know that's when we talked, and he said, "Well, I don't know what the problem was." I said, "That's all right, Jerry. I'm in the right place. I don't want to miss it anymore. I mean, he's the guy. You know, he yeah, was such yeah. a good." And so, you know, at that point, he's he's the one that gave me two screen credits and out of all the movies I've done. I had three. I think Horner. I got one with Horner one time, and uh, that's another story totally. But uh, uh, Jerry was a pleasure to work with. He's always always knew what he was doing. He had a great concept. And here's a guy that, remember, he, he got his foot in the door at CBS as a clerk typist, you know. And he was already a, a great musician, you know. But pretty soon he was doing, uh, scoring Playhouse 90, which was a live show on the air, you know. Wow. And then he, they started there, you know, and amazing. Amazing guy, you know, and the way he did things, uh, it all worked. 
you know, and he he had those multiple time things going, and you know these uh, uh, pre-recorded clicks, you know, a lot of five eight mm -hmm. things in there, mm -hmm. you know, and, and uh, he liked that, you know. So I think he's he's at the top of the list. It's hard to say a favorite or anything like that over the yeah, years. Yeah, sure. Because look at the people I've gotten to work with: Bernard Herman, Alex North. Yeah. How about um, how about your experience with Bernard Herman? I mean, Bernard was, Herman is one moment. time, just one time, and, and it was Taxi Driver, mm. and Yuan was there in the first chair, and. Ronnie Lang played the soprano sax, and it was amazing because he had not come, uh, he had not been here for a long time. He had it out with Hitchcock, he moved to Europe, and he didn't come back for a long time until this. And then, uh, well, it was Martin Scorsese, right? And uh, Spielberg, late, Stephen later told me, yeah, he says, yeah, Marty, what was the story on that? Because he, he seemed like he yelled at you on the stage. He said, yeah, Marty called, and he says, yeah, you're, you're idols over at, uh, at Warner's, you know, you should go over there. Bernard Herman. He says, because... Stephen, now we were talking to him, when he was nine years old, he was a clarinet player, but he also, his first uh, dream was to be a movie composer before a director. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and That's... he played clarinet. Matter of fact, he played clarinet on Jaws, and so did John played trombone. <laughs> right? Yeah, remember the town band in, in the, on the island, you know, there was a place where there's a parade going on, and you right. hear this background of, of sort of amateur musicians that got, they got the, uh, you know, the instrument out of the, out of the attic and just for the parade once a year. And so it was perfect. You know, me and Graham Young on trumpet, Steven Spielberg on clarinet. And so we did that at Universal. That was 1975, I think, yeah. But uh, I don't know how we got off on that. Oh, yeah, it was about Scorsese. He went over there, and Bernard Herman took a break. He was sitting at the end of the editing, editing desk, and we saw Steven walk over and lean down to him and was talking to him, you know, and then all of a sudden the neck turns red, the veins are sticking out. He's yelling at me, ah, what, what the hell? Anyway, he, he said, boy, just... I've always been a fan of your music. I always collected your albums as a kid and went on and on how great you are and what a, you're a living legend. My God, it just, and then he says, so why do you always use Johnny Williams for your scores? <laughs> Yelled at him, you know, and I think, yeah, that's what he said, all right. <laughs> he was bitter. Uh, you know? And the, the oddest thing is at the end of the week when we scored at Warner's uh, for probably four or five days, he was staying at the Universal Hilton in Universal City and died. Oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, a composer, Fred Steiner, was going to uh, meet him for breakfast. And th this girl that he was with was 20-something, and I think he was 61 only, and he had a stroke already. Um, and she was crying in the lobby. I can't wake him up. So he, oh, he died wow. at the end of that whole thing. And he had so many temper tantrums. Wow. And the older guys were saying, oh, just a shadow of his former self. You've mm. got to be kidding. This guy was, you know. The funniest story, I should tell you, my great friend, Tommy Johnson, who's passed, uh, I knew him for 50 years, you know, one of my best, I mean, besides my parents, one of the biggest, longest relationships in, in my life, you know. Mm -hmm. And he was working one of his first jobs for Bernard Herman back then. He used to tell me about that. I wasn't around. But it was like the mutes, about a mute for the two of you. You got a mute? Yeah. Well, he didn't have much money, and his family didn't, you know, was pretty low income. His father made the mute out of linoleum, but not just linoleum, but one of these with the ugly spots on it and everything. <laughs> and it was a tuba mute made out of linoleum. And it just looked bizarre. And, and Bernard Herman says, what is that? He says, well, that's my mute. He says, no, that's no good. You need a metal mute, you know? And so, oh, I don't know what to do. So he, we don't have the money to buy a mute. Went home and told his father about it. They went out to the garage, spray painted it silver, <laughs> and put it, came back the next day. That's what I meant. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Creative solutions. Yeah, by exactly. Yeah, awesome. and, and that was that was funny. But just working with him that one time, you know, was I realized he was great. Remember, his first score was Citizen Kane, and the last wow. one was Taxi Driver. Wow. 
That's and all those Hitchcock pictures in between, you know, the, uh, was it The Man Who Knew Too Much, or I can't remember. Yeah. But all those suspense movies. Yeah, an incredible career, to say the least. Yeah. yeah. Oh, you mentioned another uh, incredible composer, John Williams. I'd love to hear your, I know you worked yeah. with him extensively. And I, I also want to mention, you did that, the uh, NBC nightly news theme with... Uh, yeah, we did, it, we did it once version. back in the 70s at Paramount. It's sort of a real dry sounding, and not the best recording. I think they're still using some of those, but then probably, it's been six, seven years ago, we, we did a, a big orchestra yeah. with him. Even the videos are on YouTube of right, us right, recording it. Right, right, um, And we did all the, the music for that then, and over the years we did a lot of the Olympics then, mm -hmm. maybe all the music in one day, you know, it maybe, I guess you'd call it uh, 300 high Cs or something like <laughs> that, but with six trumpets usually, something like that, you know, so... Yeah, but I actually have uh, played my 46th score on first, <coughs> excuse me, 46th score on uh, for John Williams on wow. first trumpet. Amazing. Uh, and, you know, that's been a long time. He doesn't do a lot anymore, but I mean, most, the more recent was the last Indiana Jones, the fourth chapter, uh, Tintin, War Horse. Those, I think, were the last. He, he did something recently. I'm not sure. That I, I wasn't on it, but I don't know if there were any brass. But uh, he's been... Um, and I think the first thing I did was A Man Who Loved Cat Dancing. It was a Burt Reynolds film. And um, I got some lyrical souls in that. And he sort of, he sort of liked, started liking the way I played, I guess. And then we did the paper chase where we did this Telemann concerto for trumpets and, hmm. uh, you know, the law school, Harvard Law School. Um, and then Sugarland Express was the first one in 1973, I think, with, with Steven Spielberg. That's the first one he got to direct, his first uh, uh, feature mm. and then Jaws after that, but so uh, he's he's a brilliant guy, John, and he's a great craftsman, mm -hmm. and he's very prepared as a conductor. I mean, he gets up to conduct his music. There's no question about it. Mm -hmm. But so many composers just get hung up with listening to their music, and this this part of it goes. He's so prepared and such a good conductor, and becoming mm -hmm. better all the time. Um, so you know, it's always been that's high end, John Williams. I mean, and you know, when you let's face it. Music is, you know, only so many things can be original, you know. Mm -hmm. But the idea, well, some people might say, well, Star Wars sounds a little bit like the planets, you know. Well, it doesn't matter. It, he crafted it, and he had that in mind, and it just works, you right. know what I mean? Right. And it, it, it's, it's original for that application, you know. And uh, he wasn't copying it, but, you know, um, he's done so many different things like that. But it was, it was nice when he got the Boston Pops, I remember I was one of the people he invited to maybe be a soloist there, but unfortunately I, I put the wrong thing in there. Actually, one of the things, Long Lost Mama, this thing I did with a ragtime band, probably, and I was just thinking Pops. And, oh, he said, he sent me a letter saying, Malcolm, this is way beneath your dignity. <laughs> you know, so I thought, well, okay. <laughs> but, uh, no, he's, it, it's always been a pleasure, and I think that's probably the top, he and Jerry Goldsmith. But there's been some other people, too. I mean, I think um, Bruce Broughton uh, of today's composers is probably the, one of the most. He's, he's probably the top five of all time, I would say, but he doesn't do a lot of things. Mm. Um. You know, he's, um, he, you know, I got a couple of pieces. I commissioned a couple of pieces from him, that, you know, and uh, he's always writing things. And he fully understands brass because Bruce Broughton and his brother Bill, who's a trombone player down in Australia now, <laughs> Uh, they grew up with the, in the Salvation Army, you know, playing brass instruments on the street, like right. Phil Smith and, right, and his family. Sure. And so he knew. And when I, when I, on my exquisite album, we had to have one more piece because we got three dead composers, Bach, Tchaikovsky, and Frank Zappa. 
And so I think, that's not enough for an album. We need one more piece. Who would I pick that could write something that would be really, really good and, and something special and original? And uh, saloon music came up, and then I asked Bruce to write me a piece. He said, like what? And I said, well, something more traditional, like mm -hmm. some, has traditional stuff in it. So he took that, and he, what he did in the movie Tombstone, and he, I think he did that in London, um, it was about, you know, the, the, in the 1870s, the venue for something coming to town, like a troupe of actors or musicians, the saloon. That's where the, the stage would be, and that's where they were, but, you know, the, the bar sounds and the drinking and the, and the glasses clinking. So he actually orchestrated that out on in the intro. You know, you can hear a stride piano. It's almost like they're warming up in his cacophony, everything going on at once. And then his idea was, okay, um, it's a troupe of actors, a com company traveling, and then the cornet soloist comes out from the back and does this little solo. Well, he knew exactly how to write theme and variations mm. because of his background. You know, it, it's an intro, a cadenza, a theme, variations, another cadenza, and finale. And he wrote it, you know, in a couple of weeks. Beautiful. Saloon music for eight instruments, with seven instruments other than a trumpet. And so I think, you know, for my money, he's probably the best around wow. right now, uh, but he just doesn't do a lot. He's not really Hollywood, you know, but, uh -huh. but he's a great composer, does a lot of commissions on different people. And yeah, that's great. Certainly high praise coming from you. Let's uh, maybe shift. I just want to bring him up because I know that your association with him was so prolific, but uh, and outside of the film world, but what, can you just talk about Frank Zappa a little bit and, uh, and your, your time with him? Yeah. Um, well, Zappa, I, I'd listened to, you know, we're only in it for the money and back east when I was in New York and Maine. Uh, and I think sometime around 1971 or something, I got a call from Kenny Schroyer, bass trombone mm -hmm. player. You know Kenny. He's, sure. a, he's quite a character. <laughs> um, we just did a, actually a big panel discussion on West Side Story. There's about eight guys left that were on the 1961 score, and we went in with David Newman, and, and I did a video. Oh, had nice. a couple cameras, yeah. and we're, we still have to, have to output it. Uh, and I had a, you know, Bob Fernandez used to be a Warner's mixer, um, you know, had the, did the sound, everything, it's perfect, but uh, uh, Kenny was there, and, you know, it's a kick. He somehow, he met Frank Zappa, and um, he wanted to get a band together, a big, big group of Hollywood musicians, and maybe go on a tour. So Kenny was a contractor. Now, dear Kenny, He's always very, been very laid back and everything. Well, even when we were in Europe, you know, he was the road manager, but he didn't, wasn't in any of the sound checks uh, that I remember. <laughs> you know? My kind of road manager. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, he had a very unique, warm sound on the bass trombone, too. Just one of, the, one of the top guys. I mean, of course, George Roberts was around, so he was the other guy then, you know. Mm. And Ken, about Kenny, he, he, uh, he's, the funny thing about him is he came off the road with Kenton, and he was probably all of 18 or 19, and he gets a call from Al Lappin, the contractor at NBC mm -hmm. was doing all the shows there. And he says, well, we, wanna, we want you to come in the NBC orchestra, you know, and, and long pause, and Kenny says something like, well, I'd have to hear the band first. <laughs> wow, this guy's got quite a head on him. You know? No, he, he thought maybe I'm not good enough, you know, because he, he did, he did, his experience was a little limited, I guess. But, you know, he went to work. And uh, anyway, uh, back to uh, Zappa. Kenny, Kenny Schreier called me, and so I got over there, and, and we started doing these rehearsals with Frank Zappa, and pretty soon we're going to go on the road. I know because it was my daughter, I just been, she was just a year old, and so it was 72. The Grand Wazoo it was, and we went over with, I think, a 19-piece orchestra. And we, we had a, a concert, let's see, we started, uh, we were in London, 
Berlin. It was just a few things, but it was two weeks long. And then we came back. Uh, we ended at the Felt Forum in, in New York and then a, a concert at the Hollywood Bowl. So it was an orchestra that was put together that we know that it's only going to exist for two weeks. Wow. And that wow. was the end of it. But it's recorded and everything. Uh, but at that point, you know, um, there were a lot of people. Howard Johnson was rehearsing with us, and we thought he might go on the road with us. Mm -hmm. I don't want to tell the story about Frank had this. You know, he's got such an imagination. He wrote a whole opera for Howard. That's another story. We'll talk, we'll talk <laughs> we'll about that, that one. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that one. But he was, he was a challenging guy. I mean, you know, the stuff he wrote and uh, the Fowler brothers, Bruce Fowler, <clears throat> big deal. And he's the one that really orchestrated the uh, Bebop Tango when we did mm -hmm. it on there. Mm -hmm. uh, the piece that Frank wrote for me, it's funny because uh, after we played a couple times together, after I think it was after the Grand Wazoo tour, we had a 10-piece group with five brass called the Petite Wazoo. And we <laughs> went out and we did runouts on weekends and we never went to Europe, but we went a lot of places in, in this country. And uh, uh, so... I was on the road with them, you know, not constantly, but, you know, weekends went out, and then it sort of got, I was realizing I wasn't getting really established in town. If I'm gone, I'm, I'm going to miss out. So I think I just told them, you know, I got to do it, and I got a young daughter, and I'm missing all of it. So, But it was great because, I mean, Bruce says, even it's out on YouTube someplace, he's re rehearsing the bebop tango with his brother Tom, bass player. And uh, he says, you know, I remember Frank telling me one thing. There's this, there's this guy named Malcolm McNabb. He says, he's the only one that could play my, play my music correctly. <laughs> I thought, that's great. You know, uh, and then when I got like, a call from him to come up to his house, uh, uh, you know, come on up. He had something I want to check out. So he wrote the Bebop Tango. He had it written on his guitar. And he said, can you play this? And I said, oh, my, I hope so. I don't know. I, bring your D trumpet. So, you know, I, I did and ended up playing it on the road. Mm. So actually when... Um, the only well, yeah, they just released this thing called uh, Imaginary Diseases. You know, actually, the two albums from the '70s, and I, uh, the Grand Wazoo was called Live in Boston. I think it was was that right? Yeah, um, and uh, the Grand Wazoo uh, concert was was there, and I wrote actually a lot of the liner notes on that for for Gail Zappa. You know, hmm. and so I had to get permission to to do that piece that he, you know the bebop tango that we did, and we ended up with 22 people on it. Including my daughter playing the piccolo, who sat sat oh, in nice. Frank's lap, uh, uh, you know, picking his guitar when at those rehearsals we used to go before we went to on the tour. And uh, well, she's a musician in the San Francisco Opera and freelances up there. Does the Skywalker Ranch, oh, okay, flute huh. and piccolo. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, being on the road with him was was pretty challenging because you know uh, once you've learned the music, now can you dance and do that? <laughs> you know, like Bruce Fowler used to dance. He was a dance, you know, where he went back and forth, like, you know. And he could play the bebop tango and the trombone way up, you know. And um, I think by the time, the first time it was recorded was uh, when Vinnie Caluda was, was the drummer in the early 80s. It was like mm. 10 years after I was there. Uh, and they did it. And, I, you know, I spent a lot of time on this line, you know. Mm. The, the, the intervals are crazy. And, you know, the only way I could have approached it is like pitch center to pitch center, even if they're 15 notes apart, you know. Mm -hmm. And you have to stay in the middle. But so I, I practice it and practice it. And after playing it on the road, even for 30 some more years, I practice it. And then Gary says, well, we can record that too. So with permission, we did that. And we, we tracked it with a lot of different instruments. Um, I think there was, a, there was two bars in there that took most people about three hours to get, you know, to line up. Because mm. there's, you know, groups of five, six, seven, 
and four maybe in every beat, you know, and it had to be accurate. It had to line up. And even the drums is, is hitting everything, you mm -hmm. know. And Dan Higgins, I think, who was the one that had the held the record. I think he got it done in two hours. <laughs> but with Gary, because right. that's really, really detailed, you know. Yeah, you, sure. It's got to be. And uh, so we recorded that, and uh, that was neat. You know, I remember uh, we, we went up to uh, Zappa's house and uh, Joe of Joe's Garage, Joe Travers, and Gail and I and Gary sat down and listened to it. You know, she wanted to listen to the whole thing, see what's up. What else is on here? You know, I said, well, Tchaikovsky, Alan Concerto. What? You know, yeah. And then we listened to the Bebop Tango, and she said, well, Bruce actually did this, you know, put it together for us, did this arrangement. Uh, and uh, what's that stuff in the middle? That's not Frank's music. Uh-huh. Well, you know what? It's, it's actually, when they did it on the road, it was a head chart, and people played solos. Well, we're not doing that here, but we're doing a dialogue with the trumpet, and between the trumpet and the woodwinds and the percussion. It was a dialogue, you know, call and response. Like. And so that's what we did with it. And we realized it's only like a minute and a half line, so we had to have a middle section and then come in with another key at the end. And so um, that's the way we explained it. We said, you know, well, that's, that had to be orchestrated out you know, because it's not an improvised solo, but it's Frank's music, mm -hmm. you know, based on those themes, that row of notes that he did. You know? mm -hmm. And so I even went in retrograde. You know, I, I actually did an intro that was backwards. You know, that, that same line of notes when right. you hear that. Um, and then out of tempo and everything like that. But um, that was challenging, you know. And it was, I think it was probably the most challenging stuff I ever had to do. And a lot of people said, oh, he was so mean, so tough, so demanding, everything. I said, yeah, but you know something? Everyone got to get better chops. Everyone mm. got to be better because, because he pushed it. Yeah, you know he pushed it a little further each time. You know? Yeah, and uh, yeah, he was he was great. It was a great experience, and the people I work with, Tom Malone, Bones, yeah. Bones. And when we had the Petite Wazoo, he was in that, and of course the tuba, trombones, flute, piccolo, tenor sax. He had a, and trumpet and piccolo trumpet, and so me and Gary Barone are there playing and and. You know, we're we're on the on the ropes, and uh, he'd pick up the piccolo trumpet and play higher than us. You know, <laughs> after a, after a tuba solo, you know. Yeah, Tom, Tom so, was a brilliant in that. So way, the, the guys sure. that were there, you know, it just it was great. It was just a great uh, influence. You That's know? great. It's cool how you uh, you know, and for those who don't have the exquisite CD, run to MalcolmMcNab.com and pick up a copy because it's amazing. And what I, among the many, many things that I love about the CD, but is just the diversity of music that you've already talked about. But yeah. the, the, in fact, you could tie in Zappa and, and, and part of your own history and, and, yeah. and all the work that you've done over the years. But of course, your virtuosity kind of carries over and ties the whole thing together. But, uh, but it was, I really, like from a musical standpoint, it was really cool to see. Well, I wanted to, to really, the motivation was, you know, those three things, the violin concerto, which I used to play after our warm-ups in Jimmy Stamp's studio, uh, let's well no no that wasn't the, actually it was when I was approached by that the producer about the uh, that but the Bach two violin concerto we've been playing in the lessons mm -hmm. we get okay get our C trumpets out play it as long as until we run out of chops and so I realized I'd put a lot of work in on that and of course 34 years I had been working on the bebop tango line and then the Tchaikovsky you know that was back in 78 and then so I said well I've already put the work in on three of these things and you know so yeah. we'll, we'll that'll be what I'll, we'll do them you yeah. know? and he says well I'll show you how to do it. So we did it, and then we needed the one more piece, and that was what Bruce wrote. You know? Yeah, so fantastic. So it sort of came together, and, and it was all new. I had no idea about the process. But dig this. Um, 
it was all trumpet players. You know, the, my studio, my garage that turned into a studio, that was John Pappenbrook, who was out with Natalie Cole, and great, strong trumpet player, and he's a, a general contractor, too, and he's mm -hmm. built like about 300 studios in this in, oh, the, in town. Right? Wow. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, we got that then, and then Gary Grant, of course, and then um, while we were struggling away at this, then I get a call from Bobby Shue, hey, I've got a dentist appointment in Glendale, and I heard you guys are up to something over there, can I come over and check out what you're doing? And he saw what we were doing in progress, and he said, hey, that's going to be really good, you know. That, and then he blurbed it, and so there was a lot of anticipation. Rob Roy McGregor from the Philharmonic put it out, too, you know, that you know, it's something coming up with Malcolm that you've got to check out. So that sort of got the ball ro rolling, you know. And, um, you know, that, that's, uh, that's how it came together. And, you know, like uh, I wouldn't have been able to do it. I had no idea where to start. And then what happens after that? Doug Sachs, who's, who's a trumpet player. Mm -hmm. Sheffield Labs, remember mm -hmm. that? The sure, directed yeah, this yeah. stuff. Well, I did a couple of those with him, and I did the Ellie mm -hmm. Philharmonic with Leinstorff conducting all Wagner, and, you mm -hmm. know, and I was subbing with the Philharmonic. And also we did, uh, you know, more commercial things where, you know, Plaz Johnson was playing. It was like called Lincoln Mayorga and Distinguished Colleagues was one of them. And mm -hmm. it had a, you know, it was all direct to disc in one side, you know. But here's uh, Doug, he con contacts me and he says, hey, I heard you're doing this thing, and you know, I've always been a fan of yours. Let's make sure that you get this thing mastered and replicated correctly, mm. because that's, that makes or break everything. Yeah, sure. And so he's actually a Grammy-winning mastering engineer. He's been doing it over 50 years. He's one of the main cats in you know, producer's studio, I think it's called, or something like that. And he's out in Ojai now, but uh, tremendous help, you know, and said, I just want to, you know, and then, oh, what about replication? Well, there's a guy in Glendale, he plays trumpet too. He's an amateur trumpet player, but, but he's got this CD company, so let's guide you through the process, getting it done at, at JVC Digital, and, and we'll do the test pressings and everything. So that's how that came about. And then the other thing was we, me and Gary went out for the mastering and realized that there was a new thing there, and I'm not going to talk too much about it because I might be crossing some lines, but there was a process to take the, the bad ring out of digital. You know, it would mm. really smooth it out mm -hmm. and help mm -hmm. enhance. And he says, I think maybe on your project... It would work, you know, hmm. and so we're going to try it. So you and Gary leave the room, and we went out and waited in the waiting room, and because they wouldn't show us the box, the, the it was you know something new, and uh, then he came back like a like a uh, in an optometrist's office with a, with an A B switch in the in the mastering room. And he says, "You like this or this? What's better, that one or that one?" You know, so it's like picking out glasses. Oh, well, that one definitely. Okay, twenty-four bit, sixteen bit is what you chose with that process. So that's what we had. And then, you know, then we had to go through the test pressings um, uh, thing. And uh, it, it's just like all trumpet guys surrounded me and helped me through this. It couldn't have happened otherwise. I had no idea where to start or how to finish it. And that's how that all happened. That wow. really did. And then I made the other one, uh, and that was with just with piano. And uh, well, probably the major criticism is sonically that it's not the same. It's not orchestral as such, just a piano backing up, you know, so it's maybe doesn't have the same color and warmth that the, that the first one achieved. Uh, but it's music, and it's just more violin thefts. You know, I'm, yeah. just, I'm in there stealing violin music because I realize there's a whole bunch of stuff here, and, and I'm not going to waste time doing things that have been done to death. Another Haydn or Hummel or a, right, or right. a Hindemith Sonata or anything like that, it's all overdone. There's plenty of those around already, and I couldn't top them. But, you know, something different has got to be it. So I, I discovered Vinyovsky, you know, and I thought, hey, 
I think I was riding along and I was listening to the radio and I heard Vingaroff play uh, this Vinyovsky Polonaise. That's trumpetistic. Yeah. And But I don't like the key it's in. It's going to be in five sharps, but okay, we'll carve it. You know? yeah. And that's, yeah. that's what we did. And uh, I was had the opportunity to find a piano. So what, what can we do? But you know something? Uh, it's got to be a big piano, but I don't have a space to record a concert grand, you know? You need a big space for that. Well, what about a sample? Mm-hmm. So, I'm, folks, I'm telling you now, this is the truth. It's not a real piano. <laughs> it's a real pianist. Uh, Ika August was Heifetz's assistant and accompanist for the last 15 years of his life. Great influence. Also, she plays violin equally well. As oh, piano. Wow. And she lectures in St. Petersburg, Russia, Juilliard, different places on the art of accompaniment. And she's wow. really, really good at that. So, uh, like she suggested pieces, she told me some smaller pieces that Heifetz would use as like sorbets in the recital, mm-hmm. a little bit of Debussy, a little bit of, you know, a couple of small pieces, but then the technical ones. So that was a lot to carve, that, uh, uh, those pieces, you know, and the keys they were in, mm-hmm. many, many sharps, you know. Yeah. So uh, together, me and Gary Grant, you know, double M and double G, uh-huh. went in there and, <laughs> and worked our fingers to the bone. Yeah, well, that's, uh, and that's got it cranked. certainly a match made in heaven. You guys, it's a great musical combination. I love Gary. He's he's such a such an incredible genius. He really is. Yeah, Malcolm. As we kind of wind down here, I want to yeah. make sure to um, mention your uh, great partnership with BNS uh, Musical Instruments and yeah. these great uh, trumpets that you guys have designed and put out. So maybe you could just t- talk to us a little bit about your the exquisite line of trumpets and how that came to pass and, and, and yeah. where that's at. Well, you know, I was uh, one of my best friends is Vince DeRosa, the great French horn player, and you know, we, he doesn't live that far from me. And we, he told me, well, there's this thing happening uh, this Sunday over at the, you know, all the horns are going to come try these Hoyer horns. So I went over to his house thinking it would be a, a happening, you know, maybe mm-hmm. take some video of it. And uh, these guys walking around playing those horns. And I did this for two or three years, actually, came, you know, and I got to know these German guys that were in town that were part of the design of this Hoyer French horn. And um, it, it, they really were staying downtown L.A., so they needed a ride. So, Malcolm, could you give them a ride? So I gave them a ride a couple of years in a row, actually. You know, I was just there, and they didn't know too much about me. You know, friendly guy, and yeah, I'll take you down there. So I did, and then uh, he got through, I think, five years they worked on the Hoyer French horn, Vince DeRosa and uh, Myron Bloom, Mike Bloom, um, and they developed this great French horn. And then he, he asked Vince, he says, you know, we, we're thinking about a trumpet to out in New York, the New York Bach, you know, going back to that sense. Mm-hmm. He says, now, who, is there, who plays trumpet that might, you know, we might talk to about it you know, in the same kind of thing that you guys did? He says, well, what about Malcolm? And there was a little pause, and he said, you mean the driver? <laughs> <laughs> the driver, he plays trumpet? Yeah, he plays trumpet. So that's how that all started with uh, Gerhard Meinl. Uh, and uh, uh, then the next thing you know, I'm over in Bavaria, you know, uh, Playing and what we really started, we we started with my New York box, you know, uh-huh. and what the old man made and what he how he knew about it. And they're medium bore trumpets. And I was thinking, well, I noticed in your catalog you have eleven B flat trumpets already, but we don't have a medium bore. Oh, okay. So we'll put that in there too. And uh, I realized that you know, starting with that that great design of that that Vincent Bach did, um, and including the French bead, the French bead that he put on the horn, especially in the twenties and thirties. Were, uh, uh, it was flat and a little wider, mm-hmm. and that is the, really the secret to, and that and the way they make instruments in the old style of, of 
you know, hand pounding yeah, them and everything, yeah. and they're not stamped yeah. out. There's a ring to it. There's mm -hmm. the overtones are there, and uh, so that's how we started. And you know, we worked on it and on B flat, C, and D, E flat. Those are my main horns. And uh, then we went on to to Budapest, my my wife's hometown, and spent some time there. And came back, and they had some prototypes out, you know, and yay or nay, a few little modifications, and that's what it was based on. Then the horns came out, and uh, They've been selling around the world, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, and I, the whole idea is convincing a lot of players because they're playing really big horns that it's not necessarily about a big, big horn. You know, mm -hmm. the mouthpiece can be bigger, but it's got to be uh, a combination of the right mouthpiece and the right front end, the lead pipe and everything like that. But uh, I like the idea. My, my teacher, Vacchiano, always played medium bore trumpets, but a huge mm -hmm. mouthpiece. So mm -hmm. that was the mm -hmm. right balance. And I think in general... You know, if you're playing a huge bore trumpet over 460 or something like that, 462, something like that, a lot of times for a lead job, you know, you want a more compact, a smaller mouthpiece for that, mm -hmm. that matching up. And so to produce efficiently a big sound, you know. So um, I went over there and, uh, and got those. When we came back, we had them and pretty much nailed. I, I should say there's a guy named uh, Kleinschmidt. What the heck's his first name? Ferdinand Kleinschmidt, who's a tuba player, who works with Gerhard for like 25 years plus. Okay. He's, he tools. He's, he's the one that designs the tools for every new instrument. And it was like always I'm in this room where they mostly do tubas, you know, and all the tubas were developed in there, playing the horn. And he would go through the, shop, the factory door, and then he would come back in 15, 20 minutes. And if it wasn't nailed already, it was in the right direction, one more step at a mm -hmm. time, you know, then it was, it was there, exactly what maybe a tight place in, that it felt to me, you know, and these horns were like just an improvement on what I'd already collected. Mm. And I'm going, yeah, that's, that's great. And then when I, when I found out how uh, their quality control and how consistent they were in that factory and the way they, their attitude about making instruments, uh, I think we've accomplished something really good. And I thought, you know, that's, that's great. And these, the best thing is I can pick up any of them any place mm -hmm. and they're going to feel the same. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, congratulations on that. I know the trumpet world is thrilled that you uh, put the effort and energy into that. It's good, good stuff. Well, I just, uh, like I was going to say, that uh, a lot of trumpet players that play bigger instruments, they go, well, and they've tried them in different places, and they go, well, right, the first thing is, oh, it feels stuffy, or it's like feels, back off a little bit, mm -hmm. go with the resistance, you know, mm -hmm. you might want a bit, a little fuller mouthpiece, bigger, you know, but a medium bar doesn't necessarily have to be small, feel small, or sound small. Right, right. It's more like the combination yeah. of the components. It's good uh, that carries over to all brass. Too. All Certainly brass, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Malcolm, well, I, I just had one more question for you. And, and again, thank you for uh, spending the time here today. And uh, it's been just great insight hearing all your, uh, both both your stories and, and your experiences, but also your knowledge and insight into brass playing and, and studio work and everything. Um, with that in mind, and, you know, obviously the business has changed dramatically for, for everybody. What if you had one piece of advice to offer a young, outstanding young trumpet player out there who's thinking of trying to becoming the next Malcolm McNabb? Um, what, what would that be if you had, if you kind of had to pare it down? Well, besides learning the instrument, I, I just think that you know you have to gain exposure to all kinds of music, all genre, and uh, uh, determination is a big factor that people don't think about. You know, and there's been many people that maybe. Uh, they came from back, whoa, they didn't used to play like that. All of a sudden, they, you know, everyone's got a different rate of developing. And some, you know, like a, a guy that's just sort of a so-so player, all of a sudden they didn't have any high range. 
six years later, he's playing them and mm -hmm. they're big as a house, you know, there's people like that. But realize that, you know, um, it's the long run and uh, people, I've been contacted by a lot of guys. Well, people, maybe even beginners would say, you know, what do you, what do you recommend everything? Just get as much experience as you have, as you can with every kind of music and practice. But remember, you know, um, there's one factor, it's the determination factor that, you know, is beyond anything else. If you're the kind that's going to, no matter what you're into, uh, you get knocked down, you get up and dust yourself off and you go back for more, mm -hmm. these guys can make it. Mm -hmm. Anyone that's got that attitude, you know, haven't said that. So, because I get a lot of calls and emails and I love what you do. The, the, I'd love to do studio work, you know, I'm going, okay. Well, let's initially I have a stock thing that I say, well, you should check into the U.S. astronaut program. There may be a better chance of getting in that. <laughs> However, having said that, determination is a big factor, too. If you really want to do anything bad enough and you're just going to go, go forward with it no matter what and go back for more, you can probably make it. That's, mm -hmm. a, that's a big ingredient. That yeah. really is. And, uh, you know, just uh, realize that you're going to learn if you're listening, you're going to learn from every player that you play with, good or bad. And pretty soon, if you're, if you're learning about yourself and how you approach the horn, you're going to start to hear things happening with other people. And you say, oh, I know why that happened. Mm -hmm. You start to analyze things. And then it's no surprise when you miss a note or something, you go, okay, well, you should know right away, okay, next time, how do I readdress that? How do I not get rattled and realize that I blew it? And I go back and think about it in very analytical terms and just remind myself about, you know, this attack, stay in the middle of the, the pitch before you go to that one. Don't even think about making a slur where you go, and then you often need to just air out. Mm -hmm. But you have to be middle of the note immediately to the middle of the next note. Mm -hmm. And all keeping in mind, the most important thing is how you're leaving any note, not the one you're going to or diving at. Mm -hmm. It's all related. Feel the Arctic architecture. It's got to be tactile. You know mm -hmm. that you you have it. You know you know that this the fundamental is is related to all the way up. You know, and it's anything along the way that's out of line takes things out of focus and mm -hmm. makes it harder to play. Pitch goes, endurance goes. So centered, pitch center. That's that's what we're talking about. Pitch center to pitch center, and uh, you know. Play soft too. I mean, I've had <clears throat> guys come in and say, "Well, I, I came out to audition for Tower of Power, and I took a couple lessons here. One with Bobby Shue, one with you on, and one with you." And I, and I said, "Okay, well, what can I help you with?" Well, I'm a strong lead trumpet player. I play shows down in where I come from, and you know, but, well, what's the problem? He said, "Well, I got a good F and G and stuff like that." Well, what's the problem? Well, not every <laughs> night is good, you know. I said, "Well, duh, welcome to the club," but you know. Um, how much time do you spend on soft, long tones? Deer in the headlights, you know? Right, right. What? Well, the, the mentality is, oh, I'm a lead trumpet player. I don't, I don't do that. No, you know something, you need it more than anything else. Try it. And, you know, I get typically calls back and it was for every month. Hey, this is great. I'm giving it to my students. Say, Duh, you know? <laughs> Try to do it all. Try to right. get, visit all dynamics and all ranges and realize that, you know, a lot of the, the lead trumpet mentality is that, you know, when you're up there on high C or D, you know, you're moving the air. Well, you're moving the air when you're on a low C, you know, and, uh, but it's slower. It's steady, though. The air is very steady, obviously. But down here, the air has to keep going in that direction. Support it. So I, I hear so many lead trumpet players playing it. Great centered high Cs, high Ds, and they get down to the bottom, low C and below, and it's just, 
you know, it's mm -hmm. not supported. Mm -hmm. And learn how to support at a low level, you know, keep the, keep the air going. And the only illustration I have on that is to get in mind the birthday cake candle, you know, so you don't want to blow it out, but just imagine in your mind you're holding the flame back mm. with your airstream. Wow. And as if the air, after the note tapers out, goes past it. And learn how to use the air that way. Wow, that's a great always Steady air. Yeah. Whether it's slow or fast is necessary. Right. It always has to be steady. Well, Malcolm, thanks again for, for an amazing interview today. And uh, I love the thing about determination in life and, and in music. It's such a great thing. And uh, we will all look forward to hearing the new project and all, all your endeavors coming up. Uh, for everybody who hasn't visited Malcolm's new website, it's fantastic. Go to malcolmcnab.com and check it out. Stay on top of what he's doing. It's always uh, always inspiring. So, Malcolm, thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. Thanks a lot for the opportunity. My pleasure. And we will see all of you next time on Bone to Pick. <laughs>